At the heart of the story of Jesus Christ is the image of God's messianic king making God's kingdom present and available, fulfilling Israel's hopes of salvation and restoration, and demonstrating God's faithfulness and power to overcome the spiritual and physical power structures holding this world captive. But there's a tension in the story between the kingdom present now and the future kingdom which is coming, but not yet. We feel that tension as Jesus' followers, commissioned to be witnesses to the presence of this kingdom through ministering in power, but also, perhaps surprisingly, through suffering as well. I'm Kenny Innes, and on this episode of Theodisc, I'm talking with Ben Blackwell about eschatology, kingdom theology, and how the Gospels of Luke and Mark teach us to navigate the tension as we demonstrate the nature and presence of the kingdom. Ben Blackwell is the Vice Principal of WTC. He holds a Master's of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and a PhD from Durham University. His primary teaching and research areas include New Testament and theology, and he has a strong desire to invest in the church. If you're enjoying Theodisc, please catch up on our previous episodes, leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, and share with your friends. We want these accessible, theological conversations to stir up the faith of as many people as possible. Now, here's my conversation with Ben Blackwell on the subject of living the kingdom. Ben Blackwell, Vice Principal of WTC Theology, welcome to the Theodist Podcast. That's uh, good. To, good to be here. I've, uh, it's one of my life's, uh, you know, bucket list things checked off now to come join the podcast. So, <laughs> really delighted that you've come to talk with us today, and we're going to be looking a little bit at eschatology today, the presence of the kingdom, and really digging into Gospels of Luke and Mark to see how both those gospel writers bring out the reality and of that kingdom, how it works its its way into the world, um, but. Um, before we do that, I need to ask you the three questions for every first-time guest so that we can get to know you just a little bit better. So those the three questions are really based around things that you return to or that are constants in your life. Um, a book that you return to, um, a food or a meal that you return to, and a location that you return to. So let's start first with a book. You know, my wife always chides me that I can never pick a favorite of anything. And so uh, this is can't harder than it, it may seem. But probably as a uh, when I think about a book I return to, as far as when I teach, I teach in various settings. So between New Testament and uh, dogmatics and ethics and things. So uh, but Richard Hayes's Moral Vision of the New Testament actually is a book that I've used in all three settings because I think he captures kind of the some of the main themes. So actually, the the stuff we talk about here in Mark uh, is where I first picked that up from him. And uh, but also I appreciate his engagement with not just the text but how people are reading the text and so how the Bible has been read and interpreted. Uh, just a key returning theme, I guess, in my own work of how people throughout history have read the Bible. Great. What about a food or a meal? Yeah, food. Uh, so biscuits and gravy would probably be the default for me. I was born and raised in Arkansas and then Texas, so the South. And so in that sense, like it will be, if I go somewhere for a breakfast restaurant, that's what I'll I'll come back to. Although my wife is upset that they have uh, now have Taco Bell here in uh, Cheltenham that... 
she she thinks this is not proper food to eat but uh it would be if if i'm just by myself here in town that's what i go eat so <laughs> we should explain for our uk listeners that biscuits and gravy does not mean a plate of digestives with some oxo on top yeah. um it's a whole different <laughs> thing in the states <laughs> and what about a location that you return to yeah, location. Uh, so my parents live in uh, just outside of actually where my wife and I met at university in, in southwest Arkansas. I moved from Houston, as you all know, and uh, share that uh, heritage with you. But there are twice as many people in Houston as the whole state of Arkansas. And so when I go visit my folks, then it's uh, you're just out in the woods, you know. But my favorite place there in Arkansas then is uh, floating on this ca- uh, river, uh, the Caddo River that's uh, right near them. And so either canoe or inner tube go down there. That's probably my my happy place. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Good to for our listeners to get to know you a little bit before we talk. So let's shift gears here. We'll get into talking about eschatology. Now, for those who are listening, quite often any word that ends with ology can sometimes cause their eyes to glaze over. So could we give a a brief definition of that term eschatology for those who are are listening and might be unfamiliar with it? If you've heard much about it, it usually is end times, apocalyptic stuff destruction of the world, mark of the beast, who's the antichrist, all that kind of stuff. But uh, for me, I I see eschatology as much more about this movement of God's activity in history. And so it's based off this idea that something is broken here and now and that God, there's this hope that God is going to come and bring restoration. And so it's that that mixture of hope and suffering, hope and restoration, and that history is moving to a point. Usually what leads to a lot of the Old Testament prophetic texts, where we get the idea of eschatology from, you have these pagan nations that are oppressing you. And so where is God in the midst of that? Mm-hmm. Um, just to, if for the word nerds out there, you know, eschatology comes from the word eschatos uh, in Greek, just means end or the final things, where things are moving towards. Right. Gotcha. So you've already just kind of hinted there a little bit at, um, at the prophets that we find in the Old Testament. Can we talk a bit about what were the eschatological hopes that we find in Israel's story? Particularly, as you say, they, they find themselves at the towards the end of the Old Testament in a, quite a, a situation of exile and occupation by foreign nations. So what were the hopes of Israel? Yeah, it goes back to kind of the Mosaic Covenant that in that sense that God had promised flourishing if there's obedience, but covenant curses. And among those, um, death uh, is probably the primary one that associated with the covenant curse. But kind of that as a, a metaphor, I think, for wider forms of unflourishing, whatever that word is, you right, know, yeah. uh, exile then that you're kicked out of the land, that you're in this uh, oppressed by these foreign nations. And so that was kind of set up as part of the covenant reality there. And so, of course, most of the historical text in the Old Testament then are talking about the way this devolution or consistent walk away from God and eventually uh, their sins in the north accumulate and the Syrians come and then 
couple of centuries later as the South follows in that same pattern of idolatry and social injustice and all these other things that were in separation from God. So then these covenant curses and particularly exile is kind of the climax of that. And so the hope then, or the expectation is that even in the Mosaic covenant, so Deuteronomy 30 says that, you know, when you're, when you're scattered among these lands, you know, God is still going to come and circumcise your hearts, uh, but also bring restoration and bring you back to the land and restore you. And so in that sense, I mean, one of the things about restoration here, so we could just as easily use the word salvation, right? I mean, that's what salvation looked like is coming back to the land, flourishing in community, and then also this internal transformation. And so in that sense, salvation is never in the Old Testament about leaving to go somewhere else. That's actually the problem. (laughs) It's returning and flourishing here in uh, this worldly place. And so eschatology is oftentimes, you know, what happens when I die, you know, questions float off to heaven or something. And and actually, if we take this image from the, the Jewish prophets that established this hope that the early Christians held on to as well, so that God would come and fix the place that we're at and return us home, yep. uh, not to leave somewhere else. And it feels like there's a like kind of an Edenic element to this as well, because that whole story that you just spoke there is reflective of what happens in Eden, this choice to abandon the relationship with God, the exile out. So how does that play into this sense of both that we're, there's a, a future point that's also itself a return and it also involves this creation element as well it's not an abandonment of what god god has has created yeah and this is a key point i think in genesis you see this reflection of the blessing and cursing language which uh, we can easily associate with the mosaic covenant or the other covenants so abraham and genesis 12 for instance uh you have the blessing 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 over and over again but actually that blessing and cursing language is uh, Genesis 1 to 3 language as well, too, that uh, God, when he created, placed them in the garden, that he blessed them. And uh, when they died, the, the whole idea of from their sin is that cursing then is corruption of what God's intention is using that same language of blessing and cursing life and death. And so in this covenantal restoration that you see in the prophets is actually speaking to the original intent of Eden as well. And so in the prophets, then you get the language of new creation and Isaiah, you get the imagery of Eden, you know, the lion laying down with a lamb or children playing with snakes, these kind of things, you know. And so this, this separation, this uh, corruption has been undone and restored through the gospel, the good news, right? Even that's a prophetic language there of this restoration. And so in that sense, I think it is, uh, you know, the New Testament very much plays on this Eden, particularly at the end of Revelation, is very explicit, you know, the Eden language as well. You know, so I think it's important that Christian theology here of hope and restoration is not something that was invented by Christians, it's very much just taking forward the story of Israel of what would be called a restorationist eschatology in that <laughs> sense, like it's a restoration, but it, it's also the problem resides within Israel. They, they need a Messiah that would come and uh, bring this restoration. So we've got this hope of restoration, um, of new creation. What was the mechanism or what was the way that Israel was expecting that that would come about for them? 
Yeah, so you have multiple factors, I guess, here. I mean, the primary one that we would think of is the Messiah. Um, I don't know if in the UK, The Chosen uh, as a TV show about yeah, Jesus is it's popular. as popular as it is in the States, but th- it seems that it's the messianic hope in The uh, the Chosen is probably overstated. They keep repeating it over and over. I, I think it was more like a lot of things that someday we'll have this, but uh, maybe not in our lifetime you know it's often the way we think about uh, i think eschatology in that sense the coming of the messiah uh, would be a key uh, element of that uh, you have other things like ezekiel and uh, isaiah particularly talk about the coming of the spirit in a different way or and you know they saw the spirit active in the old testament so not just radically new but at the same time there would be a fullness of the spirit and of course that plays out in pentecost and and the, this day of the lord right the other aspect of it though too is that there would be kind of some traumatic tribulation apocalyptic kind of things you know the mm-hmm. sun will be darkened and you see kind of tensions with this in the new testament as well how to how that plays out and so how the end times really come is some of that trouble has not happened in the same way that we thought about and where does the idea of kingdom play into that then yeah i mean i think the messiah then is yeah. the king right coming to uh, establish his kingdom and between the old and new testament you have some called the intertestamental period so between the testaments or scholars talk about it as second temple judaism mm-hmm. so the first temple was destroyed when the babylonians came and so they rebuild a second temple and that temple ran until the Romans destroyed it just after the New Testament time frame. And so in that sense, then Christianity arose within this Jewish hope of the second temple period. And so you have the, a whole slew of texts. So like one Enoch is a text, Jubilees, but they talk about what would it look like when the Messiah comes. And basically that the Messiah would come and bring order out of chaos. So again, this is kind of the same themes that we talked about with Eden, about order and chaos are key issues there. And so that this king will come and rule righteously and he'll bring justice to where there's injustice. And so, of course, with these foreign nations, that's the kind of injustice they're thinking about is unfaithfulness to God, but also just poor relations, you know, and and oppression. So when Jesus begins his ministry and starts preaching, saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's an eschatological declaration then, isn't it? Yeah, that's the whole deal. It's uh, that the kingdom is already here. I've come from a tradition where the kingdom was not here. I was, you know, American evangelicalism, and I hate to throw out these big words, but dispensationalism was uh, the primary view that I was raised in, the sense that the kingdom is when Jesus comes back in the end times, and that's why he has to come and do the the thousand-year reign, is because he offered it to the Jews, and they rejected it. And so then you have this church age that is kind of a, a different thing and so the kingdom is kind of irrelevant to the church because you know we're not jews we don't live in the nation the state of israel with the king and so that's going to come back a thousand years later but so much of this whole story is actually recognizing no that jesus proclaimed himself as the one who's bringing in the kingdom of god he didn't use the word messiah for himself but even the son of man language comes from daniel chapter uh, seven which is the son of man receives a kingdom 
an eternal kingdom. And so in that sense, the Son of Man is just as much king language as the word Messiah is. If anybody has had me in class before, it's important to know that, you know, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's his title. He's It just means Messiah. You know, so Joseph and Mary Christ didn't have little baby Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. Right. So Jesus the Messiah. And that just means he's the anointed one, the anointed king. And so it makes sense then that he is preaching the kingdom of God, then these two things go hand in hand together. So so if Jesus is preaching this message that whatever this end time expectation of God's returning rule and restoration of things is present in the here and now, there's obviously a tension there. For us, we look around and we see the world is still full of violence and pain and trouble. And yet we have this declaration by Jesus that this future restoration is available so how do we kind of navigate that tension yeah that's the you know the language of already and not yet or now and not yet now and not fully there's different ways that people talk about that and um you know a lot of traditions hold to that now my mother-in-law's a presbyterian pastor and so she mentioned the already not yet as such a presbyterian thing and i was like well no it's not i don't know i mean i, I thought vineyard owned that or even charismatics or whatever i don't know yeah it's uh, so a lot of people use that language but i do think there's some specific things around that in this sense that the kingdom is here and so you see that transformation the work of the spirit uh particularly healing and um other forms of communal restoration even economic transformation through the gospel, but also that there's still suffering that the the church goes through. And in fact, uh, the important thing is, we'll talk about this as we look at Mark, is that actually the suffering is not meaningless suffering. It's the suffering that undoes the power of evil in the same way that the cross does that. And so it transforms the nature of restoration and suffering, I think, in that sense. So let's look at the Gospels of Luke and Mark, which might help us understand the way this works itself out. Both Gospels presenting a slightly different emphasis on how the kingdom is manifest in the world. So maybe we begin with Luke. What's Luke's deal? How is he he presenting this picture of the, the kingdom come? Both Gospels talk about the kingdom is already here. I mean, both of them pronounce that the kingdom is here, right? So yeah. repent and believe. Live like the kingdom is here. Don't, don't, the kingdom's not coming a thousand or two millennia later. It's here now, you know, because the king is here. They both have that same idea. And then they both present the idea that suffering is part of following Jesus. You know, Bonhoeffer talks about it as costly grace. It's just that this is the nature of grace. That's, and so both speak of the already and both speak of the not yet. However, when we're thinking of snapshots that give us a clear lens on what the already looks like, Luke is uh, quite good on that, particularly in chapters four to 10, not just in the sense of what the already looks like, but already how does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus, not just looking at what Jesus did. I think in a lot of ways, this is the tension that happens in both Gospels, is that the stories of Jesus become just Sunday school stories, right? They're Hmm. nice for children's books, or you do, you know, you get to your coloring page for the kids, you know, he's healing the blind man or doing whatever. But when it comes to our day-to-day life, oftentimes we'll turn to the Pauline letters or other texts that are much more like, okay, go do this, go do, you do that. Y'all need to use these gifts this way. You know, it's much more uh, programmatic. 
Um, and I think in Luke and Mark, one of the important things that both gospel writers are saying is like, no, here's the story of Jesus. And if you see the disciples, they're drawn right up into the same kind of things Jesus is doing, both in his healing and deliverance, but also in his suffering. It's very much about the lived reality of the kingdom being here and also the lived reality of waiting for the king to fully come later. So Luke definitely has this emphasis on the proclamation that the kingdom has come and then immediate demonstration of the power of the kingdom um, at play. Yeah, so Luke 4 uh, is the classic text to go. It's Jesus' first sermon in Luke, and the, uh, he, he preaches a sermon from the Jewish prophets, right? Isaiah 61, right. the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And so in that sense, you see the connection between the Spirit and anointing. And again, uh, because we are reading this in English, not in Greek or Hebrew, we don't see the connection between anointing and Messiah or Christ, but the word anointed is the word that we get Messiah from. The Messiah is the anointed one, or the Christ is the anointed one. And so in that sense, the Spirit's presence with Jesus is what makes him the Messiah. And so he, as Messiah then, does these kind of things and particularly he proclaims or evangelizes the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners recover your sight to the blind to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the lord's favor so in this sense of like all the good stuff that god has been promising is wrapped up in jesus's work and particularly where the spirit is there this is what the gospel is and summarizing at the end of chapter four Jesus, the people want him to stay there, but he says, you know, I need, I must go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so in this way, all these good things about sight to the blind and setting the prisoners free is what the kingdom looks like. And so that's the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is here to proclaim and to establish. So he's not just talking about it. It's not something that's going to happen later. It's like, this is what it looks like here and now when you see the Messiah and the power of the spirit. Uh, bring this transformation. So discipleship then in Luke very much looks like Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, demonstrating this presence of the kingdom, and then empowering his disciples to do that same thing. Yeah, that's the whole deal. So, you know, you can see just the reflection of this, the echo in uh, Luke chapter 7 with John the Baptist sends his disciples. He's in prison. So, you know, he has a, you know, fair question here of, you know, you said your gospel was to set the prisoners free. So are you the one that's actually coming to do this, right? And so this sets up this tension of the already and the not yet. The kingdom's not always going to look like or snap 100% fine version. But, you know, Jesus heals the blind and it says that he proclaims the good news to the poor. And so he, he's demonstrating, yes, I am the the one that who's there to come. And again, uh, in the beginning of chapter 8, he re- reminds them, or Luke reminds us, like, It's the good news of the kingdom, right? And the way that I was always taught evangelism or like the standard version is that Sunday morning, you invite people to church and then they'll see the kingdom at work in the church. So basically they'll hear an evangelistic sermon and that's how they get uh, converted. And so your task as a Christian is to invite people to church, right? And if you share the gospel yourself, that's great. But I think the, the main thing here that Jesus lays out is, his kingdom work was going out, bringing healing and restoration to people. And so in Luke chapter nine, we see Jesus sending out his 12 disciples. And in verse two, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. 
And so what this means is they, he calls them to do exactly the same kind of ministry that he was doing himself. He's bringing the kingdom to them rather than having them come to some place. Hmm. And so that that's okay. It's the 12 apostles, right? They're super Christians. They're the missionaries. But I, I think Luke 10, when he sends out the 72, this is where the pinch comes in because he sends out these other folks. And in chapter 10, verse 9, he says, you know, when you go into a town, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near, right? And so in that sense, he's telling these regular everyday Christians, not just the super apostles or the pastors to go do these, the exact same thing that he's been doing all along. One of the most kingdom things we can do is ask, how can I pray for you? Right? So healing may not be physical healing, still relevant and important today, but it's not as urgent as it was in the ancient world, where if you got a scratch, you might die of sepsis, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we don't have those issues in that same way, but uh, mental, emotional, communal, relational healing, economic even, I think this is the holistic restoration. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to go out and pray for God's healing to come to people. And I, I think the whole idea is not just how, how can I pray for you? And then you walk away and pray in your, your quiet time in your closet. I think the whole idea is let me pray for God to live and act and show up right now. And that's a risky prayer, you know, to do that. People are happy if you pray for them, by and large. Most people say, yeah, pray for me, you know, but for you to pray right there in the middle of a coffee shop or on the street or at work, I mean, that that's the, the harder, uh, riskier venture. We can't avoid that pattern and relegate it even to the gospel because as Luke continues into Acts, you see the early church continually declaring this message of the Christ or the Messiah and demonstrating the presence of the kingdom. And I think sometimes, you know, in our evangelical charismatic worlds, we can gravitate towards that and say, this is great. We can take a hold of this and we can begin to practice it, even with some trepidation or some nervousness. But there's generally this acceptance that, yeah, we we get to do some of the, you know, these things that Jesus and, the, and the, his followers demonstrated in, in Luke and Acts. Mark presents a slightly different picture of Jesus' mission, his kingdom mission, and the disciples' part in that. Yeah, so Mark, again, has all sorts of things about healing, the disciples involved in healing, but the the other side uh, that he also brings out clearly is, if you look at Mark 8, 9, and 10, this whole idea that Jesus is the Messiah, but not just the Messiah, but the, the conquering Messiah, but also the suffering Messiah. Hmm. And of course, all the Gospels have Jesus being crucified as the King of the Jews. So this whole kingdom theology is essential to all of the Gospels, and particularly the climax, the death and resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews, is, is quite important to their whole story. And so one of the things that's important to Mark then is kind of helping people understand, like, if Jesus is the suffering king, what does it mean for us as disciples as well? And you have these three-part pattern in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. So it's repeated three times there to really get this idea that Jesus is going to suffer. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you too will follow him in this path of suffering for the sake of other people. And that's difficult sometimes because I think we think that where there is suffering that's kind of antithetical to the kingdom so where the where the spirit is there's freedom where there's suffering 
there's definitely no kingdom in there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, and, and it's a tension. I mean, because I think there is a sense of like healing and restoration, you know, and so I think this is where, you know, one, the narrative itself shapes our theology rather than just being a nice story to read. The cross is not just something that happens for us. It's something that happens in us and shapes our lives. Uh, but also we even see this in Paul and his uh, theology as well. So Second Corinthians is quite overt about this. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about us carrying around the death of Jesus constantly. And what he yeah. means by that is that we're suffering with Jesus for the sake of other people. And so it's not just the gospel that talk about this, but people talk about the upside down kingdom or the inversion of the world's values. Um, you know, we easily in, inhabit those. And I think you have in both, both Luke and Mark, you have a subversion of the values and the and the powers of this world but mark presents suffering as the way that that inversion occurs what is jesus inviting his disciples into when he says you know you have to join me in your in my sufferings and mark 8 is where jesus uh, goes off on this uh leader's retreat so he's in caesarea philippi which nobody knows you know the average person doesn't know where that is but it's outside of town it, it's actually outside of israel it's up in lebanon and just like any leaders retreat you go out of town right and so as you often do with uh, organization you have your your branding campaign well who do people say that i am is our message getting out there rightly and so you know they respond well john the baptist or one of the prophets and so this prophetic image and and that's not wrong right i mean jesus preaching calling people to repentance things like that but then Jesus asked, well, what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the King. Peter gets it right. And importantly, this is the first time in the Gospels that a one of his disciples recognizes this or affirms this about Jesus. And so it's a key moment. But the important thing is that they still don't capture like the nature of what Jesus' messianic ministry and its fullness is going to be. And so Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and ultimately he'll be killed and rise again. And so in this sense, he's saying the, the king, the Son of Man, is going to be a suffering leader, not one that rides in on the white horse and beats up all the bad guys, right? Just insert Marvel Universe, you know, <laughs> plot line here. But his whole thing is like, I'm going to suffer and die. Now, of course, this doesn't fit with what Peter's expecting. And so Peter takes him aside. He's nice. He, he takes him off to the side, it says, and tells him, hey, Jesus, you got the wrong you're, you're reading off the wrong script here, mm -hmm. right? I've, I've read how all the good movies go, and this isn't it. But Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of God or the human things instead of the things of God. And so I think that's the important deal of how much this rejection of suffering is the anti-gospel, uh, the anti-Christ, really. Mm -hmm. And where we get this then is the Jesus' response that it's not, let me give you a sermon on why the Messiah must suffer. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So the whole idea here is what Peter is not just denying that Jesus suffers. He's denying that he has to follow the path of suffering. And so Jesus uh, calls Peter and the rest of the disciples that if you want to uh, be my disciple, if you want to be my apprentice, if you want to follow me and do the things that I do, you've got to suffer as well. Yeah, and that's a hard message. The The next in chapter 9 and chapter 10, 
uh, we see that same repetition where Jesus says, I'm going to die. The son of man will suffer and die. Then the disciples in those two settings, they're arguing about who's the greatest and can they sit at his right and left hand in glory. Right. And so they're uh, just showing a different way of rejecting the path of suffering. And, and in both cases there as well, too, Jesus says that, no, if you're going to follow me, the first has to be last or you've got uh, to be a servant. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so in that sense, you too, or we too, as disciples are being called to give our lives as a ransom in that same way as a servant. So in the, in the same way that Acts kind of projects forwards Luke's um, message of this the, the power of the, the kingdom present. Um, also in Acts 4, 14, you have Paul and Barnabas saying to the church, we must um, suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And, and certainly you see, you know, on Paul's missionary journey, all this stuff, all the stuff that he has to go through for the sake of the kingdom, literally yeah. in many cases, willing to lay his life down or lose his life for this message. So I, I guess I mean, can I bring this to, a sense of how this how this works itself out for us in our experience we, we've talked about you know how we we are still tasked with this this mission of proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom particularly around the idea of suffering how do we display the kingdom in our sufferings in our present mm. world mm. I think it, it, one reason to talk about suffering is eschatological. The main reason you would suffer here and now is because you have a hope that something greater is going to happen in the future. And so in that sense, it, it demands that we actually believe that Jesus is coming back and that there is the hope of the resurrection and so that we can give up something here and now. Uh, I can speak more into the American political scene, but how Christians engage politics in the States is like, well, I've got to accumulate all this power culturally here and now. And so even if I've got to crack a few eggs to get there and, um, you know, so maybe be a little bit immoral or whatever, you know, make some deals with the devil, I guess is you'd say, you know, that's just the nature of politics. But as long as we get, once we get in that seat of power, we can do all the good things that we think. Right. And I just think that's the exact way that the disciples were thinking that's antithetical to the kingdom. It's like, no, actually you go and suffer for your enemy. You don't oppress them. You know, you don't uh, try to edge your way into these positions of power. And, but you only do that if you think that I can sacrifice something here and now and God's kingdom will still happen. Mm -hmm. And and so it does uh, take a, a trust that God is going to have his purposes fulfilled, even if it doesn't look that great for us at the time. And that's the, basically the message of Daniel. Like Daniel was mm -hmm. like, hey, you're going to see success. You're not just going to be oppressed by this king. There's going to be a whole series of kings that follow them as well that are going to be evil and oppressive. And God's kingdom, God's still doing his work in the midst of all that. And so you don't have to control the world events. You control your reaction to the people around you. And, and one of the things I think is quite important in, in all this suffering is that, particularly in today, is that people really are um, have a lack of a, a sense of self, a sense of self-worth. 
And when you suffer on their behalf, you are demonstrating that they're worth something to you. And so it, it, I think in that sense, that's why it preaches the gospel so much. It's like, there's good news in this because somebody thinks I'm worth it to experience this. Uh, and so it's just as much a, uh, evangelistic, I guess, in that sense. I mean, it's not, we don't want to make it mechanistic or instrumental in that sense. It's like we do it because of God has called us and out of love. Uh, but there is, uh, there are good effects of that in the same way that Jesus's death on the cross shows us his love for us, right? That we are worth it. And so that we can live that and see that for others. Well, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but I just wonder if, as we finish, if you might just pray for us that are listening, that we would be able to embrace this whole picture of what it means for the kingdom to come near in and through our lives. It'd be great. Yeah. No, thanks. Well, Father, we uh, often live our lives more according to the idea of karma, that if we're good people, then good things will happen to us. And and what we realize, though, is that none of us are good enough for that. And so that we can't manipulate the system to be good and restored is that we need grace. And particularly, we need costly grace. And so that that costly grace is powerful. It brings restoration in life through the healing of the spirit, but it's also a costly grace that we inhabit and in discipleship father. And, um, in some ways that we, we pull back from both. We, uh, you know, I know that there are times, um, when I don't pray the risky prayers, uh, with the, the person in front of me that I might, uh, and so miss out on seeing that aspect of the kingdom, but also pull back from those opportunities to, give up, uh, you know, the current goods of money and time and um, space to do what I want uh, when you call us to sacrifice those things for the sake of other people. And so we miss that side of the kingdom as well. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to live our lives here in the present and light of the future and just trust that you uh, have our goodness our uh, flourishing and the flourishing of this world in your hands and that in your kingdom we can trust you and all that so lead us forward as we follow our king jesus amen amen thank you ben for joining us it's great to have you yeah i always uh, enjoy it and uh love the podcast and uh, just can't wait to continue to hear more yeah and be back yeah that's right (laughs) well thank you Ben and Kenny for such brilliant insights into the kingdom of God both the already and the not yet and how we can live according to this kingdom's principles both in power and through suffering so much to ponder In our next episode, Kenny talks to Jared Boyd about his new book, Finding Freedom in Constraint, Reimagining Spiritual Disciplines as a Communal Way of Life. In this book, he explores spiritual disciplines as more than the individual practices we do, but the communities we live in. His book is deeply challenging, and his chat with Kenny promises to also challenge our thinking and lifestyles as followers of Jesus. 
Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to episode 30 of Theodisc. Join us for episode 31 with Jared Boyd as we discover freedom in constraint. Bye for now.